Well, you may have wondered when you heard our scripture reading this morning, what does that have to do with Advent or Christmas? Because what we read was the calling of Matthew to be a disciple. Well, you know, there are four Gospels, and Matthew is the author of one of them. And Matthew tells the Christmas story from a very different angle and from a different beginning than uh, uh, the other uh, gospel that has a Christmas story in it. You see, there are four gospels, four different accounts of the uh, life and the meaning even of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Four different accounts, and they start at different places, all four of them do. They all wind up in about the same place with the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then his being with his disciples for 40 days after that, and then his ascending into heaven and promising to return. Some people wonder why four gospels and they, they, they see the uh, differences in them as being something that kind of takes away from the veracity of the, even the existence of Jesus. But I have no problem with that at all. Because I've shared with you, I was an insurance adjuster at one time whenever I first started out. When I first started in the insurance claims profession, um, one of the main things that I investigated were automobile accidents. And what I had to do, one of the first things I did was I went out and I took statements from witnesses and uh, say that there were four witnesses that I was able to get statements from and say one of them was an auto body mechanic. One of them was a doctor. One of them was a lawyer. And let's see, and say that the fourth one was a policeman. Now, these four people would give very different stories as to what they saw happen, because first of all, they probably tuned into it at different times. One of them might have had a screech and turned around. One of them might have seen somebody coming and dodged them uh, and saw it from a different perspective. So you see, there are different perspectives that could be had of the same event. But in taking their uh, story, in uh, recording their uh, version of what happened, first of all, we know what the body mechanic is going to give us a lot of detail about, right? That right rear quarter panel and how messed up it was, and how it was going to have to, it could be repaired. The car wasn't totaled, but you know, he could give all that sort of information. The doctor would zero in on the injuries. The lawyer would zero in on who was negligent. The policeman would zero in on who broke the law and who should get a ticket. And so even though they might be coming at things from a different angle, a different perspective, all four of their stories together would give me a much more complete picture than either one of them had, even though they saw it take place. I would have much more detail for having all four of them. Do you see that? 
So the four Gospels are four different accounts of the same incident, the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, these four different gospel writers are very different. Uh, You see, uh, two of them were disciples of Jesus. Uh, Matthew and Luke, not, not Matthew and Luke, Matthew and John were both disciples of Jesus. They both walked with him. They talked with him. They saw all the things going on. And these are eyewitness accounts of people that were right there with him. And they have people keep on trying to say, oh, you know, we don't know uh, the, who the real Jesus was. They have uh, put the, they have found fragments of the gospel of Matthew that date back to around the year 60 AD. That's 30 years uh, after Jesus' crucifixion or about that, just about 30 minutes. So there wasn't a lot of time and there were eyewitnesses witnesses still alive when his gospel was being circulated. So if there's anything wrong with it, it would have been corrected. Mark was about the same period of time. And uh, John lived to be 90 years old, and it appears that his gospel was written almost 30 years before he died. He could uh, even uh, correct his own manuscript if that were the case. Now, Mark is a very special case. The gospel of Mark could also be called the gospel of Peter, because you see, Mark was the interpreter for Peter. And so Mark had to tell Peter's stories over and over and over again. And Mark's gospel winds up looking like a Reader's Digest version. It's much shorter. It can be read out loud in two hours time. And it's much shorter, but what it gives is much richer in detail in most counts than all the other gospels are. Like when Jesus is in the boat and the storm comes up, none of the rest of them mention that he had his head on a pillow. I mean, that's how much detail Mark goes into. And so you see there are four different perspectives and all four different perspectives give us a much richer view of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not anything to doubt because there are little differences in what they tell because in the big things, they're all the same. In the big things, they're the same. And so I just didn't know if you knew that these stories that we have come from so close. These are nearly all of them. They're either eyewitness accounts like Luke. Luke, uh, traveled around with Paul. In fact, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote uh, the uh, the, uh, the book of Acts. And there's a place in the book of Acts where he's talking about uh, Paul. And then Paul gets to a certain point. And Luke says, we then went on for here and, for, and to there. And Luke actually traveled with Paul. And uh, 
and he got to meet the disciples and he got, he drew this account together so that others could have an account of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's life. They're all just right there, just right as it's happening. And so we see in these other places where it says, and we beheld, we beheld his glory. They're not talking about just humanity and yeah, Jesus was this or that. They're saying we were there at the Mount of Transfiguration. We saw him glow. You know, they're that they're just uh, they're saying these things we saw. And so as you read the gospel stories, remember, this is the truth. It's not something that's that's been changed through the years to where we don't know what it was really like. You know, the Da Vinci Code. Oh, I don't know if how many of y'all read that. Their place where they say over 5,000 years, 2,000 years. It was written by man and then changed. Nah, it was written by God through men, men who were right there seeing it happen. So with that in mind, I want us to look at the gospel of Luke, not the gospel of Luke, the gospel of Matthew this morning. And I want us to see where it begins, because who'd have ever you'd have thought you ever thought that you'd start the Christmas story with a genealogy? How many of y'all uh, have ever looked into your family trees? Let's see your hands. If you've, and you know about your uh, grandparents and your great grandparents and all that. Okay. Well, you know, my history here in Texas goes real deep. My family's history in this country goes back to its very beginning. Uh, MacMans were here in Texas. While it was still a part of Mexico, uh, Lindley's were here with the old 300. Uh, McMahon's were coming in even before the old 300, I think. I mean, we, we just go back a long, long way. And my grandmother on my grandfather's side, <laughs> my grandmother, my grandmother, <laughs> my grandmother on my father's side, uh, was very, very thrilled with our heritage. And she would take me up to MacMan's chapel and the old kid, you know, yeah, yeah, grandma, you were looking at graves and stuff, you know, it didn't sink in what was going on till later. But finally I got interested and I started trying to track things down because I knew that my four greats grandfather was a circuit rider, uh, a Methodist circuit rider. And there's a record of him coming into Texas from Arkansas at one point, while it was still a part of Mexico and illegal to hold Protestant services and helping with a revival. There are accounts of him uh, helping with uh, services for Indians here in Texas, even. And uh, just amazing. Uh, his, uh, his, his, his love of the Lord, you can just see it. And people just commented on the warmth of his sermons and stuff like that. Great guy. And so I wanted to dig in and start just kind of see what in the world caused these McMahons to move from Kentucky to Texas. Well, sometimes there are things you don't want to find out. And it turns out that William Friend McMahon, the reason why 
He came wound up in Texas because he killed a guy in uh, Kentucky and uh, he left town before they, they came out to get him with a warrant for his arrest and uh, he was gone. And so they tried him in absentia and he was sentenced to be uh, executed by hanging upon capture. So this is my four greats grandfather. You know, uh, you look, start looking, you start shaking the family tree and things fall out. Now, it bothered me for a while that I had a murderer for a, but then I, so I dug into it. I discovered that this other guy, the guy that he shot had shot somebody else. He was, uh, he's, he had been indicted in connection with another fight. He was, uh, somebody was always getting into fights. He was indicted two times, two times the year before he was shot for blasphemous speech. Uh, and some other, and they're like, like in two years time, he had five indictments against him. He was not a real fine and upright character and he shot other people, but his last name was Harden. It was Harden County. And uh, I think the sheriff that came out to issue the, to, to arrest him, his last name was Harden too. So I think my grandfather after the election and a hard became sheriff, my four greats grandfather, I think he saw the handwriting on the wall. And so he just decided to change his address. But the thing is about all this is that had he not left Kentucky, it's, it's what, I'm, what I'm getting at. It's amazing how God can redeem our past because he had to leave town. Obviously he probably wouldn't have met Reverend Stevenson down in Texas later on and come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior and then being licensed to preach if he'd stayed in Kentucky. And so uh, I can see the redemption story at work there in my family's life as well. But uh, in the story that Matthew tells, we see that he begins with this genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. And this is the point we see that, that, that Matthew thinks it's so important to make to his Jewish audience. And that is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now see, Matthew was writing and there are two things that he has to lift out. First of all, the main point that he wants to get across is Jesus is the Messiah. And then it's understood that if he's the Messiah, he has to be of the lineage of of David. And so he establishes that Jesus was a descendant of David. But in establishing Jesus's credibility, Matthew really shakes Jesus' family tree. And it's amazing what falls out of Jesus' family tree. Uh, things that 
probably should have remained unsaid. Uh, things that didn't help his case, it appeared. Ancient historians often had to put a positive slant on uh, their records because kings and military leaders were paying them to write their genealogies. And so uh, since they were paying them, if you look, you'll find gaps in their stories. You'll find incompleteness in their genealogies. You'll find exaggerations. You'll find military defeats being excluded and just ignored, as well as crimes and even the names of children that didn't turn out too well, just kind of being left out of the genealogy. But when we come to the story of Jesus, as Matthew begins it, it's just the opposite. In fact, it is so opposite as to be offensive. Matthew highlights people that we would be prone to just skip over and just keep on going. In a list of men, which most genealogies were just, they, were, they would list the men, he includes the names of four women, two of which would have really been, he should have excluded. Three weren't even Jewish, and they were Gentiles, and he skips Sarah and Rebecca and Leah and people like that. Matthew 1.3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He didn't have to mention that. He could have just gone on and not said whose mother was Tamar. Now, the story of Tamar and Judah is almost X-rated. I mean, it's a tawdry tale. And we're going to look at it next week. So y'all be sure and come back next week if you want to see something really racy. I mean, this is a part of Jesus' genealogy. The story is so seedy that it you've got to be careful telling it in mixed company. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Rahab had a label. Rahab had an appellation. Now, what I'm talking about is, you know, there's, you know, like, uh, you, like, if I said Mac, you would say what? Huh? The knife. The knife. Yeah. There's Mac the knife. Uh, Ahab the, Arab. yeah, Ahab the Arab. Uh, let's see here. Billy the, kid. yeah, Billy the kid. Uh, Zorba the, Great. yeah, yeah. Jimmy the, Great. yeah, yeah. Y'all can probably come for some more. Well, it was all, whenever you say one name, you always say the other. Jojo the, yeah, Jojo the dog-faced boy. He walks, he talks, he crawls on his belly like a salamander. Yeah, Jojo the dog-faced boy. Now, there really was a Jojo the dog-faced boy. I'm not going to share that with you. But there really was. You can look him up online. But uh, 
Anyway, Rahab's appellation was the harlot. You never said Rahab without saying the harlot. And so here she is. A prostitute is one of Jesus's several greats' grandmothers. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now that's a good story, the story of Ruth. But she wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile. Okay, Uh, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Ah, finally we're to David. Yes, we've got to David. But then listen to what he does. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, Bathsheba, had been Uriah's wife. He didn't have to put that in there. You know why he had been? She had been Uriah's wife. It wasn't Uriah anyway. It's because David had Uriah killed. And here, all this bad stuff. Matthew just he elevates it. And Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I mean, he just digs it in. Do you see that? It's just amazing. So why does he highlight the failures, the sinners, women, when he skips over certain individuals in the genealogy? So why does he do this? It's because from Matthew's perspective, this is the point. This is the point. This is why Jesus came. Matthew knew from personal experience that it was for the unfaithful and sinners that Jesus came into this world. He knew the story of Christmas is a story of light piercing darkness, life entering the dominion of death. Grace entering a world of law, a story of forgiveness, overpowering and redeeming condemnation. He knew this because he was a part of the story and he had experienced firsthand what it meant to be invited to be a follower of Jesus when everybody around you knew you were unworthy and you more than anybody else knew you were unworthy. And later in his gospel, he tells his story. And that's what we read this morning. Right before Jesus meets Matthew, and we don't know, he might have, he was in Capernaum, and Capernaum was Jesus' base of operation. We don't know, he might have seen Matthew several times before. He may have had to pay his taxes there. But at this particular time, a paralytic had been brought to Jesus by four men. And he had looked down on this paralytic and said, my child, or my son, your sins are forgiven. And oh, all the righteous and religious people around, 
said, he can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus heard him talk and he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. And he said, neither, nonetheless, so you will know that the son of man has the power to forgive sins. And he told the young man, he told him, pick up your mat and go home. And he got up and he went home. And it is immediately after this that Jesus walks away from that and he walks straight to Matthew's tax collecting table. And in a way, it's almost a, a, a reenactment of what had just happened where the paralytic was frozen. He couldn't move. He couldn't do anything about his situation. Matthew was in a spot that he didn't think he could ever get out of. And then Jesus walks up to him and to this guy that the whole world looks on as totally unworthy of Jesus even speaking to says, follow me. And all Jesus, all Matthew says about himself after that is, and he got up and followed him. That was it. That's all Matthew says about himself. Except the thing is, whenever he followed him, he didn't know where he was going at first, but they went to Matthew's house and Matthew had a party. And I've told you about this. And it said, and many tax collectors and sinners were there at that party. And then it says in another place at this party, and they were following him. The tax collectors and sinners were receiving forgiveness of their sin. They were receiving new lives. They were being given just light instead of darkness. And there was rejoicing there at Matthew's house. And the scribes and the Pharisees were outside. They weren't going to go in that tax collector's house. They would not step in his yard because you might get tax collector or sinner cooties. <laughs> they wouldn't, they was unclean. And so they're talking to maybe a disciple there in the yard saying, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? They looked on Jesus as a rabbi. He was like them, but he was doing things that they would never do things that they thought were totally wrong. But you see, because he was doing them, people were coming into the kingdom, people that didn't think they were worthy. And one of the biggest was Matthew, the writer of this gospel, whose life has now been changed. And from now on, he's not going to be looked on as Matthew, the tax collector, he will now be Matthew, the disciple. He's been taken into a totally different realm, a totally different world. He is going to be shortly after that commissioned by Jesus to go out and preach, to proclaim the gospel to others and to cast out demons in Jesus name. What a change in his life. All of a sudden, just because Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me. 
implied in that was, I have the authority to forgive your sin. I have the authority and the power to give you a new life. So Matthew followed and believed. Whenever the uh, scribes and Pharisees were asking his uh, followers, why does your master do this? He answered and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Matthew wasn't offended by this because, yeah, he was one that needed a physician as he was thinking about it. Yeah, I was sick, but I'm not anymore. The real shocker, the real shocker to Matthew was that being a sinner didn't disqualify him from being included by Jesus. And three years later, having listened and watched, having stood by an empty tomb, Matthew understood why Jesus could extend this invitation. His standing with God, you see, was not based on his personal righteousness, his rightness. It wasn't based on his goodness. It wasn't based on his consistency. His standing with God was based on the righteousness of the man who had invited him to follow him. And so as he looked on this genealogy, he felt no pressure to include only the good people and to avoid the bad and to skip the failures and include only the heroes. He knew that the arrival of Jesus signaled something new. God was drawing near to those who had drawn away, to those who had been drawn away. God was inviting people who knew that they were not all right and uh, that they, they weren't near what they ought to be. He was inviting them to come near in spite of what they had done and because of what he had done. When the Son of Man entered into this world, there wasn't a perfect family set up for him to come into. He had to come into a family just like we have. But he came into this family to redeem it and to change it. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the people we find in this list of shady characters. Liars, cowards, people with pasts, not a one of them who could have come to God on their own merit, all of whom God chose to be in the lineage of his son. And here's my wish this Christmas, that any of you who are still trying to come to God based on the good you think you've done, 
And any of you who would shy away from God because of the bad that you have done would abandon that approach altogether. Just forget about that, about how good you feel you should be or how bad you know you have been. Abandon that approach altogether. And it would be my wish that from now on, you would come to God based on what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is why Christian in their prayers in Jesus name, because that means that they're praying based on Jesus righteousness. It's in his righteousness that we can only think our prayers might be heard. God has drawn near to those who have been drawn away. And if you are far from God, I hope that during this Christmas season, you'll accept his invitation to draw near to him as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son into this real world, not some made up world, not even some made up family, but into a family that's so much like any other family that's represented here at this time. And we thank you that you have drawn near to us so that we can draw near to you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.